Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if uh, Timothy, I haven't met you. If you're new to our church, we'd love to get to know you and say hello to you uh, later after the service or uh, at another time. So glad you're with us. We're continuing in our series this morning in the New Testament letter of Ephesians, uh, which we've titled "Who Are We? Who Are We?" Uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's rooting the Christian church and the Christians in their identity. And then calling them to live out what is true. And I said uh, in our first week in this series that for the first three chapters of this New Testament letter, Paul, the author, is pounding over and over and over again, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are in Christ, in Him, united to Jesus by faith alone. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he calls the church to live accordingly. And we'll look at that as we continue in our series. But this morning, we pick up uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which is perhaps a, a well-known portion of Scripture. For some of you, it is a glorious portion of the Bible. It's, it's a passage that I believe is extremely important for us to grasp. I think failing to understand uh, the truths that are taught in this passage of Scripture will lead to many being plagued by spiritual mistakes. Uh, and so this is an important passage for us this morning. Uh, I don't know if there's another passage that, that lays out the beauty of the gospel story uh, as clearly as this one. Uh, so we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at a catastrophe, an intervention, and lastly, a monument. A catastrophe, an intervention, and a monument. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able uh, as I read God's Word to us this morning. This is God's Word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Right, let me pray for us. Lord God, I ask that you would come now and speak to us, that you would wake up those of us who are slumbering and asleep, that you would enliven our hearts and our minds to those of us who are bored with life and bored with you, that you would soften our hearts with all of us who may have hardened hearts, and that you would breathe life into us this morning. That we would have ears to hear from you. That you would remove me. And that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart this morning would be pleasing to you. Lord Jesus, would we see you clearly and experience you from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I don't know if you've ever been reading a story or watching a movie. And as the story unfolds, there's, there's just a lot of pain. Uh, there is a lot of discouragement. And you begin to feel this is just too much. 
And so you decide to stop reading or to, or to stop watching. If you've ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave about slavery in the antebellum South or the movie Life is Beautiful about Nazi Germany, but the pain and the death is overwhelming in both of those movies. And I was tempted in both to want to just turn it off. It was too much. And I was left wondering what good comes out of this. This is all just too much. The first thing I want us to see this morning in this passage is that there is a catastrophe. There's a catastrophe. Paul writes in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. The catastrophe that has struck mankind and our world is death. It's death. God created the world and there was life. And the story started out great for about three chapters of the Bible. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed and they ate from the tree and sin entered our world and everything was broken. Adam and Eve felt shame. They were banished from the garden. Cain in the next chapter of the Bible kills his brother Abel. And as the story unfolds in the Old Testament, it's quite depressing. There's manipulation, there's adultery, there's murder, there's oppression, there's idolatry, just to name a few. And it can feel like it's just too much. Here's a truth in which I doubt any of you here this morning would disagree with. The world that we live in is messed up. Right? The world that we live in is messed up. 129 people killed in Paris. 43 killed in Beirut. Two women two weeks ago here in Durham were attacked on the Ellerby Creek Trail, one sexually molested. Two blocks from my home this past week, a man was shot and killed at Liberty Street Apartments. According to East Durham Children's Initiative, almost 100% of children in East Durham are on free or reduced meal plans at school. That's a lot to take in. But then you look at our own community and there's cancer ravaging families, surgeries that are needed, diseases, death. There's feelings of loneliness, depression, anxiety. And all this feels like it's just too much. Our world is messed up. We know this. We read about it. We see it on TV and we experience it. We could choose any stories uh, that, that come each day and be reminded that our world is messed up. And for some of you here this morning, this is exactly why you have chucked Christianity as a viable option and, uh, for faith and living. That there's just too much evil in our world. There's too much suffering. If there was a God, He would do something about it. So you stop reading the story. You stop watching the story unfold and you chuck Christianity altogether. The reality of how messed up our world is we all have to respond to it. The problem of evil is a problem that some of you here this morning seek to address intellectually. Some of you here this morning, if you were just to pause and think about it, your personal pain, the death around us, the catastrophe right, that is around us, tears start to flow. Our passage, I believe, offers healing and the solution. But before I go there, I think we need to understand this catastrophe more deeply and more personally. Before we go to the pinnacle of God's grace, we must understand the valley of the shadow of death. We must understand our place in death valley. So look at verse 1. It says, we were dead in sins and trespasses. Dead. 
It doesn't say we're sick. It doesn't say we're wounded. It doesn't say we're weak or struggling. We are dead. We're not swimming in the ocean, right, with our noses bobbing in and out of the water trying to survive, trying to take gasps of air. We are dead on the ocean floor. And there is a finality to death. When someone dies, there is no hope of resuscitation. Outside of Christ and before life in Christ, Paul is saying all there was and all there is is death. Now this does not mean there's inactivity. That all who are dead do nothing. Verse 1, look again, it says dead in the sins in which you once walked. This is a walking death. This is dead men and dead women walking. What, is, what does that even mean? I heard, it, I heard it described this way. Think about vegetable life, animal life, and human life. There's a grade upward, right? Though every one of those types of life is life, yet if you are a human being and you have the functioning of a frog, then you are in a living death. Why do we say when a person is not functioning at all but is only surviving on life support that they are a vegetable? It's alive in a sense, but it's not human. It's sub-living. Paul is saying that there is a level of life that is far above what the world thinks of as natural human life. Just as much as natural human life is above animal life. From God's point of view, He created us to be fully alive. But we're dead. We're subhuman. We are the walking dead. Look at verse 2. He says, following the course of this world. Following the course of the world. Paul is saying, this is is the imagery of slavery. We're enslaved to the course of this world. He's saying we're slaves to the ways of the world. Meaning, we are part of the world's value system. That creates political oppression, that creates poverty, and hunger, and racial discrimination, and injustice. I would, I would laugh, I know there's some UNC students that are here, when I was with RUF at UNC for five years, um, many of the students at UNC fought for a cause. There was a cause that they were fighting for. An NGO that maybe they were going to start and they were going to save the world. Duke students, y'all are the same. Uh, all right. Uh, poverty, education, affordable housing, disease control, whatever it was. And, and Durham as a city is not much different, right? Everybody wants to fight for a cause. I, if I check in at CrossFit Durham, it's for a cause, right? They, they, everybody here wants to fight for a cause. And there's good reasons and purposes for that. But it is easy for us to think that we can be the solution to the problems in our world. That we're the solution. But what Paul is saying is that we're dead. We are following the ways of the world, which means we are partners with all of the oppression and all of the injustices. We're not the solution. We're part of the problem. We follow the world and we follow the prince of the air. We are partners with the evil in our world. Death also means, verse 3, We're corrupt in our nature, sons and daughters of disobedience. That we're all born with a nature where it is not possible not to sin. All of us are born with a nature where it is not possible not to sin. Sons and daughters of disobedience. Try as we may, 
as good of a life as we think that we can live, we will always make life about me. We will always make life about me. That's the heart of disobedience. A selfish, do what I want, when I want, for whatever reason I want type of heart. Now I already know that some of you are, are thinking or feeling, that's not me. Daniel, I'm not that bad. There's no way that I add to the problems of the world. I do a lot of good. Life's not about me. Well, let me try to give you some, an argument for, for this. Did you know that 30% of pictures now taken are selfies? 30% selfies are the epitome of saying life's about me. And I'm going to post it to Instagram and Facebook and let everybody see, right? What's more beautiful than me, right? Let's take a selfie. Right? When, when someone asks you, how's your day? Why is our first thought, how do I feel? How was I treated? What did I get accomplished? Life is about me. Here's a confession personally. I'm a driving confession. When I'm driving down the Durham Freeway, 147, and I'm trying to merge onto the freeway and someone's in the right hand and they're not getting over Right? They're, they're going to run me off the road. I start to get pretty angry. <laughs> and I think, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? They think they own the freeway? Right? They think they're the most important person driving on the freeway? And in my judgment, what am I really saying? Don't they know I'm the most important person on the freeway? Right? Don't they know who I am? Get over. Right? Now maybe you're saying, okay, Daniel... I really do like to do good for others. I really do want to fight for a cause. Why is that? I venture to say because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good. Morality is often driven by self-absorption. Religious people coming to church, what we're doing this morning, can be me-centered. Right? What's the question a lot of people ask when they visit a church? So I'll ask it. I wonder if I will like it. Right? I wonder if I like it. We get interested in Christianity because we're interested in what God can do for me. Because you find yourself in a place where you need God on your side. Amen. If you ever find yourself feeling like God's not on your side, that God's not giving you what you want, and now you want to chuck the faith, you may have been using God all along. And making life about you. See, this is the catastrophe. This is Death Valley. We are self-centered. We're part of the problem. Prone to sin. And this is where if you are reading the gospel story, you could be tempted to say, too much. Too depressing. All this talk about sin and me being part of the problem, too much. I'm, I'm going to put it down. But I deeply believe that the scriptures teach us and that Paul here in Ephesians is teaching us. Unless we understand how deep the valley of death goes, we will never understand the pinnacle of God's love and grace. Unless we hold the diamond of God's love against the backdrop of our darkened hearts, we will never see its full brilliance and beauty. Unless we see our death, we'll never grasp the life that's offered to us. Let's look secondly at the intervention. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher, said that verse 4 contains 
the two greatest words in the whole Bible. That this verse describes the whole gospel. Verse 4. But God. But God. We were living in a catastrophe. But God intervened. We were dead. But God made us alive. Verse 5. We were disobedient. But God frees us from the powers and the ways of the world and the devil, verse 6. We were dead on the ocean floor, but God raised us up and seated us with Christ, verse 6. We deserve death, but God gives life. But God. Not but Daniel, but God. We contribute nothing. God intervened. The two greatest words, but This is the Christian solution to the evil in our world and the evil within our own hearts. This is the part of the gospel story that that we must continue reading and believing. This is where the trajectory moves from living in the valley to up on the mountaintop. So let's look at this intervention and why God intervened. Why did God intervene? Our passage tells us because God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, his mercy doesn't run out. It doesn't run dry. You can't tap the well of God's mercy dry. He does not grow tired of you coming back to the well of his mercy. He doesn't look at you and think, when are you going to get it together? When are you going to get it together and finally help yourself? To the contrary of how I grew up and to how many of you maybe grew up, nowhere in the Bible does it say God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere. The Bible says God helps those who are desperate and those who cry out. And God loves to give mercy over and over and over. Do you need His mercy this morning? I want to tell you He delights to extend it to you. Here's a second reason for this intervention. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. By grace. The Christmas is not far away. We're going to hear the bells of Salvation Army ringing as we come out of grocery stores. And it feels good to give some charity to the Salvation Army. It can feel good to clean out our closets and give some clothes to the Durham Rescue Mission. It can feel good to go and help build a house with Habitat for Humanity. You can give charity this time of the year. But let me ask you a question. Are you desperate enough so that you can receive charity? Or are you too prideful, like I often am, resisting, receiving, have a hard time asking for help? So we we must get to the place of seeing our helplessness so that we can receive the charity and the grace of God. Being able to receive the grace of God, it's a gift from God. It's a gift. So sometimes the worst thing for us is to have everything go our way. To have circumstances go our way, the desires that we want go our way, because it's in those times that we can trust in our circumstances or we can trust in ourselves. And sometimes the best thing for us is to have things not go our way because it makes us helpless. And desperate. And that's the place where we receive grace. It's a gift to be in that place. 
God's kindness and God's love is often seen in his silence to you and often in his no to your request. So for two chapters, Paul's been telling us what we receive when we place our faith in Christ. That we receive everything that is true of Jesus. That our identity is now wrapped up in the identity of the Son of God. I used two weeks ago the imagery of marriage because the scripture uses that imagery. And when I got married, everything that was Rachel's is, is now mine. And everything that was mine is now Rachel's because we're one. We're united in marriage. By faith in Christ, we become united to, to Christ. Which means that we are alive. Christ is not dead. He is risen. We have been risen. We're seated at the right hand of God, victorious. All that is His is ours. That's a gift that no one should boast. God wants us to boast in Jesus, in Christ alone, and all that we receive from being united to Him. Is that your boast this morning? You come to this place boasting in Him alone, or is your boast in your job, or your family, or your importance and influence, or your reputation? When we understand, but God intervened, we'll boast only in Him. The last thing I want us to see is a monument. Catastrophe, an intervention, a monument. Look at verse 10. It says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once God has intervened into our dark and broken lives and He's raised us up, this new life in Christ, we now become monuments of His grace and of His love to a messed up world. We are monuments, not pointing to ourselves, but pointing to Jesus. We are signposts, pointing to the one who's rescued and saved us. We are His workmanship, his artwork declaring to the world the healing and the redemption that's found in Christ. So I want to give you a few ways that we're his monuments of grace in this world. I mentioned a few of these uh, a couple weeks ago, but I want to state them again. The first thing is we've become a people of assurance. People of assurance. We are loved. We are resurrected from death to life. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places because God chose to pour out his mercy and, and grace in our lives. Amen. Not by our own doing. The old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So we can be confident that we're sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Nothing of our own doing. And that gives incredible assurance and this assurance makes us a people of security. It makes us a people of peace in a world full of chaos and disorder. And in a culture full of pressure and performance, we boast in Christ alone that we're a people of peace because we have assurance in what he's done on our behalf. Here's the second thing that's true. We become a people of humility. People of humility. We were helpless, powerless, but God. We offered nothing, and God chose to pour out his love and his grace. We had every reason to get what we deserved, his wrath and his justice. But instead, the Son of God took our wrath and our punishment, and we get everything that was Christ. Nothing did we do to deserve it. That produces humility. Let me tell you this, true humility produces people that are non-judgmental. 
When I start to judge people, when I start to be critical of other people, <laughs> I know that I'm not believing the gospel of grace, Amen. of Christ in me. Do you judge someone because of their economic class? Because they're poor or because they're rich? Do you judge someone because of their political party? Because they're a Democrat or a Republican? Do you judge someone because of their clothes? Because they're super hip and cool or they're dressed down or they're preppy? Do you judge someone because of the stickers on their car? Or they have no car? If we ever think we're better than someone else, we don't know how deep our sin runs. I was talking to someone in our church the other day uh, about if our church was a place that welcomed people with certain sin struggles. They were, do you th- we were just asking, do you, do you think we're a church that welcomes people that are struggling with these particular sins? And I said, I hope we are. I pray we are. If we're ever a church where someone enters our community and they feel ostracized and they feel like they think we're better than they are, we're missing the grace of the gospel. Humility is I need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. My sin runs as deep as your sin. And with this, we become a loving and welcoming community where people know they can confess and they can struggle. With this humility, we become a community where barriers are knocked down, where Republican and Democrat can love each other, where wealth and poverty can live together, where young and old can have a good time together. People of humility. Lastly, makes us a people of action. When we receive grace, we will want to extend grace. When we really understand it, we cannot sit idly by and not do something about the brokenness of our world and the evil that exists. When we're gripped by the grace of God, we will not be able to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the individual sins and to the systemic sins in our world. Ray Cortez tells the story of a league celloist in the Sarajevo Orchestra in 1992. Sarajevo, the capital of war-torn Bosnia, it was once a gorgeous Olympic city. During the war, one day, a number of people were waiting in line to get bread when a huge bomb was dropped, killing 22 people, 22 neighbors of this celloist. And the next day, the, the celloist took his chair, he put it in the middle of the bomb crater, and began to play beautiful music. It didn't stop there. He took his cello and he would play in cemeteries. He'd play at funerals. He'd play at places that were abandoned. He would play his beautiful music everywhere. And what he was saying is that when there is a catastrophe, I can't sit by and do nothing. I must do something. I must be active in bringing peace and beauty into this darkness. And let me tell you this, Christ Central Church, our success is not necessarily in our numerical growth. It is in being a healthy church. I pray that we're a healthy church, and this is what a healthy church is. It is a church where the gospel of grace is changing our lives and our community. The grace of the gospel is changing us. And then it's forcing us to be a people of peace and beauty and justice and love and grace. A church that doesn't sit idly by, but a church that by God's grace does something about the messed up world in which we all live. Amen? Let's pray.
God, I ask that you would wake us up to the beauty of your grace, the depths of our sin, the heights of your love. Lord, would we understand it and would it change us? Would it make us people of assurance and deep humility and people who can't sit idly by but offer the same grace we received to the world that we live in? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.